back to another episode of Public Problems. This is Justin Book, and I'll be your host. In this episode, we discuss mass incarceration in the U.S. It's a pretty chilling story um, with a lot of uncomfortable evidence. So I hope you'll listen along and examine the evidence for yourself as the story unfolds. We'll be looking again at this topic from a few additional angles later in the season. Also, if you haven't, I hope you're also checking out the PMRA series that I'm hosting with Nathan Favero. Um, that series is being recorded live over on the PMRA Facebook page. Uh, the next conversation we're having is on Monday, March 12th at 3 p.m. So I hope you'll check out the PMRA Facebook page and join Nathan and I over there live as we talk with um, some academic public policy scholars. I'll also be posting podcast versions of those live episodes on the Public Problems podcast if you prefer to listen to them in podcast form. As usual, the next episode of Public Problems for Season 2 will be published two weeks from now, and that brings the next episode being published on March 23rd. Thanks again for following along, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. Today we're going to be talking about mass incarceration. I have with me today a few students who are working on their Master's in Public Service and Administration at the Bush School of Government and Public Service and had the fortunate or unfortunate opportunity to have a class with me in the fall of 2017. And for that, they went and did a uh, half a semester long research report on an issue that they thought was important, that they thought was important. And so um, I'm going to let them put that in context for you, but before we get there, um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves so you know who you'll be hearing from. I'm Andy Parnell. My name is Ashley Alley. My name is Samantha Wilkinson. My name is Joseph Tate. This is Michelle Lee. I'm uh, Robert Latimer. All right. So give me a little bit of context by what do you mean by mass incarceration? I mean, is that are you trying to signal that this is kind of a big deal? What's What do you mean by mass incarceration? Most definitely it's a big deal. So when seeking out a public problem to focus on for this research this semester, we could not ignore the astounding numbers that the United States has in comparison to the rest of the globe when it comes to um, people behind bars. So the United States actually has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, just kind of a rundown, incarceration rates is about 700 per 100,000 in the United States, but the UK 145 per 100,000, Portugal 139, Luxembourg 120, and the list continues to dwindle. So it's a prominent problem right now. So, so the US houses one fourth, one quarter of the world's prisoners total. Definitely, yep. And and then it sounded like when you said those rates, I mean, the, the lower rates, the jump you mentioned from the U.S. being almost 700 to just, I mean, I think the next closest was the U.K. I mean, the U.K. is 145 per, what is that, 100,000 people. And then the, in the U.S. it's 693. So yes. that's a five-fold in comparison. Are there any, I mean, in your research, is are any developed countries anywhere near, I mean, is this just kind of picking data or is this kind of, I mean, is there a huge gap between the U.S. and the rest of the world? It's huge. Um, we found several facts and figures um, just identifying what, that was just a summary of what we found. And so you'll see that, yes, it's about fivefold for 
all of the developed nations across the globe. So how, um, okay, well, that's pretty stark. Um, so why is that? I mean, how did we get to a place where it's five times the rest of the world and a quarter of the world's population? I mean, that, how did we get there? That's definitely a good question, and that's something our group um, looked at throughout this um, half semester working on this project. Um, so we first started by breaking it down uh, with the timeline of events that we felt um, have led to where we're at now currently. So we found that our starting point was in 1619. Um, that was when the first slaves were brought to the colony of Virginia, um, obviously a form of enslavement leading to the beginning of this problem. We then see in 1829 the Eastern State Penitentiary, um, which was the first modern prison in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Next, in 1865, we have the 13th Amendment, which was supposed to end segregation and enslavement, but it still allowed for prison systems. In the 1890s, we have the Jim Crow laws, um, which led to more racial tensions and African Americans still not um, getting the fair treatment that they deserve. And this issue we expand upon more in our research later on. In 1914, we have the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act, which is considered the first war on drugs. In 1963, we have Gideon versus Wayne, Wainwright, which was a Supreme Court case that decided that everyone has the right to an attorney, meaning that public defenders now must serve everyone that goes into the criminal justice system, which mm -hmm. will also be expanded on further later. In 1971, we have the Nixon administration declaring the war on drugs, which is the war on drugs that is most commonly thought of when mentioned, um, which has led to more imprisonment for drug um, offenses. And then we have in 1986, the Reagan administration having the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which created mandatory minimum sentences. So there's a lot there that you um, that you kind of brought into the picture throughout the history. So I think um, I want to unpack a little bit of it, um, and I it sort of this sort of goes to defining the problem. So I, I think in your history, you sort of show your hand a little bit about what you found in your report about what's the contributing factors to mass incarceration are. So it sounds like from your description that this issue of mass incarceration is intimately tangled with slavery as one piece. It's in, and it's intimately tangled with uh, race and it's intimately ta tangled with uh, drugs. Mm -hmm. Seem to be all of the pieces that you included in your history of mass incarceration. So before we, are those sort of, as we move forward, are those kind of the main contributing factors as y'all have seen them um, causing mass incarceration? Yes. Yep. yes. Yeah. Looking at those specifically, and then of course the public defender problem is also kind of edging its way into those top problems. Say well. that one again? The public defenders. Like ah, okay. And the, and the idea being that there's a shortage of public defenders, Correct. right? Okay. Okay. Well, that puts a lot on the table in a hurry. So let's talk, let's unpack some of those. I'll let you pick. Um, but since you've identified a couple factors, I think we need to convince an audience that those are the underlying factors. So I'll let you pick which one you want to start with. Um, just before we begin on okay. that, uh, our, 
are this is a very controversial issue so we would just like to emphasize that we are not experts on the issue but students that have made conclusions from weeks of gathering empirical evidence on the problem so with that um i guess i kind of would like to start with racial discrimination okay. because that's a huge um kind of core problem that comes with the historical development that uh, Sam posed. And so with that, currently African-Americans are incarcerated in state prisons across the country at more than five times the rate of whites and at least 10 times the rate in five states. And so um, Jim Crow kind of began that with um, introducing the United States to, well, not just introducing, but exacerbating the segregation problem and um, dis and yeah, segregation problem, um, kind of creating ghettos. And so ghettos were systematically created and exploited and now are the primary focus for incarceration. And so that's actually from Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And she really goes into just how the historical development with the Jim Crow laws and then war on drugs along with several different pieces of legislation and how that kind of started with um, segregation and creating um, the disengagement of the world with lower class and with um, it created a race problem like it just did. And mm -hmm. so that's what happened, which created um, these neighborhoods that were the primary focus for the war on drugs. And so these neighborhoods being um, Los Angeles and with that really looking at um, the crack use and that the war on drugs started to um, uh, started to really change the mandatory minimum prison sentences for drugs. And so with the war on drugs, they looked at crack instead of powdered cocaine. And so um, historically, uh, crack is a lower uh, drug class and whereas powdered cocaine although the same, is um, for uh, higher class, primarily white individuals. Mm -hmm. So that's what we found in our research. And so with that, um, that exacerbated the problem of, well, now you've got a microscope on lower class individuals and their drug problem rather than the drug problem as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so that's where racial discrimination started because um, that's where media and that's where the administrations um, that's after Nixon that uh, started the war on drugs and followed the war on drugs, that's where they focused. And so actually in 1995, 95% of criminals were depicted as black drug dealers, while only 15% of actual drug users were black and most were white. And so that really just shows you the racial disparities that um, started this mass incarceration problem. Yeah, and so this is, I mean, as Andy makes uh, clear in her summary, I mean, this is very well documented, right? This is not something I'm sure is well known throughout the general public, but very well documented across a number of fields, across sociological fields, across criminal justice fields, across public policy fields. Um, and um, the war on drugs in particular um, uh, is sort of seen as clearly racially motivated by historians. Um, that it was in lots of ways just code for going into uh, black neighborhoods. Um, and I think Michelle Alexander's case is intimately tied with this as well, which you mentioned. Um, and um, I think she paints a nice picture of a, um, a lens which you could see this, which is, is pretty clearly a racial one. 
Um, and so you mentioned the war on drugs. Um, and what that made me think of is um, when was the spike? And so one thing, um, when was it that in the U.S. incarceration rates got so high? Is this a new phenomenon or has it always been really, uh, have we always been an outlier in this? Um, so really this is, it began 1970s. And so okay. it was a pretty consistent increase um, from like we mentioned the Jim Crow laws to kind of the war on drugs, but war on drugs 70s really started because we saw a huge change from 200,000 in 1970s to now two point almost 2.3 million. But there's also a really big spike from the 90s who was still like barely hovering around 1 million, not even. And so it's it's actually, you would think looking at the numbers that it's grown more now than ever. Um, and although the war on drugs was decades ago, the enactment and um, beginning of it, it's still followed through mm -hmm. today. And sure. so um, it's just kind of exponentially grown since then. So it started the, the, the growth started around the time of the new of the of the Jim Crow laws and then has just been kind of going up since and then really started growing exponentially in the 70s and 80s with continued growth in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And has it leveled off at all? Is it still just kind of going through the roof? It's more, now it's more of a moderate increase. You're not seeing the huge spikes that we were seeing in the past couple of decades. As you can see through the past kind of five, 10 years, it's kind of just increasing definitely, but not as exponentially. And, and part of the reason that for that is the prisons are overcrowded as well. If we had bigger prison systems, I think we would continue to see massive growths in the amount of incarceration, but physically there's not space. So it's almost hit up against like an infrastructure of capacity mm -hmm. that there just isn't more physical space for prisoners. Okay, so um, we talked about drugs, drug offenses, and how... Um, um, those have been targeted towards uh, black communities, particularly with the differences across um, crack and cocaine, as Andy mentioned. Um, what else, uh, other than uh, uh, the war on drugs, what else is, is helping drive this? Um, well, minor drug offenses. There's also a cycle of incarceration that has kind of added to it. And so this was briefly mentioned, but public defenders and parole. And uh, so with that, you have overworked public defenders and parole officers and the overall disorganization of the parolee system contributing to the broken system. So like Sam mentioned, we aren't seeing an exponential growth anymore, rather continued amounts. So we're not seeing a decrease. And this is like partly in contribution from the cycle of incarceration where there's just not, um, we don't have the capabilities to progress these individuals. So for public ind defenders, um, they'll have on average sometimes seven minutes of their time to focus on each individual case. And then um, this can lead to 90 to 95% of court cases ending in plea bargains. So um, you'll have individuals that um, don't even have a chance to defend themselves or be proven innocent if they do not have the financial capabilities to do so because the public defenders just, 
it's not that they're terrible and at their jobs, it's that they just don't have time and they don't have the resources. And with that, you get um, individuals going into prison that may have had a chance if uh, they had better opportunities for them, given to them by the justice system. And then you have uh, criminals coming outside of the system and for parole with really, really strict um, guidelines on them once they're out almost as worse as prison. And so with that, they'll even be for halfway houses in neighborhoods that are drug ridden. And um, you also have overworked parole officers and overworked halfway house staff that can't look at the individual and help them in the ways that they need it um, on a personal basis. Rather, it's a blanket we've got to do and help as much as we can, but it's not enough because again, they just don't have the resources. Um, so that's a big thing is a cycle of incarceration is just just a circle just that keeps going and it's really hard to break the cycle. And then you have, um, which ties back to the historical development and racial discrimination you have um, and Michelle Alexander really touches on this in the beginning of her book. You have fathers that are convicted felons and don't have the um, resources to excel and have this stamp on them and cannot show or give to their families like they would be able to if they weren't locked up for a felon crack case. And so that's that's just a um, kind of hypothetical situation, but um, it's proven. And so it's just you have fathers, and sons, and it's just this cycle just keeps going and going. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I've been aware of some of the um, issues related around mass incarceration, and it's hard to kind of sit and really think about without it just making you feel ill, because it's coming at all different levels in the criminal justice system, all the way from the way in which we treat the way in which we treat drugs to the way in which we treat the courts and uh, public defenders and parole and how we as a society limit access to things once you've served time and so the whole thing to your point perpetuates uh, a kind of cycle of people that end up in jail i mean the the term and starting at a really young age right i mean one sort of popular term is the school to prison pipeline in a lot of these communities, right? It's just something that seems unconsciousable as you like sit and kind of focus on it. Um, okay, so these are some of the like things that have been contributing to the rise in uh, incarceration. Let, let me ask a, a couple of clarifying questions before we move on from here. Is there any evidence that it's just that, that, this is wrong. Is there any evidence that just crime in general, like violent crime, the types of crimes that we would be wanting to put people away from in society, has it just been dramatically on the rise as well? I mean, what percentage of these prisoners are actually drug related? I mean, it, it, is it really 40, 50%? I mean, it can't be that large. So how like how, what percentage of these are violent and the types of people that maybe there is a good argument for removing them from society and then maybe like drug use, which is maybe has some other reasons why we put people behind bars for that. Um, actually, in general, 39% of the nationwide prison population serves little to no public safety threat. So you've got a little under half of um, those incarcerated who are not violent offenders. Mm -hmm. And um, so 
it's not really a rise of that as much as it's you've got approximately 79% of today's prisoners suffer from either drug addiction or mental illness. Um, 40% suffer from both. There's just over 60% of the previous 39% mentioned again, um, 364,000 um, are nonviolent, low level drug offenses. Um, yeah. So it's not like it's 5%, right? No, this is like no, a no. Huge percentage of the prison population. No, and, and according to um, the Bureau of Prisons, they put out a statistic, um, an estimate that in 2016, the types of crimes that were incarcerated, it was actually about 50% were drug related. Now, that percentage is a bit higher than what Andy was stating about the 39%, and that's because some of those are violent drug offenses. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just knowing that, that 50% of all the incarcerated have to do with drug offenses is concerning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really seems to be one of the major pieces. I mean, it's not like there has been giant rises in violent crime mm -hmm. in the United States, for example. Um, okay, so I think this paints a sad, um, but a picture that people can see of uh, the, the kind of criminal justice system in the U.S. or the ways in which um, we might have gotten ourselves in a spot where our incarceration rate is just dramatically larger um, uh, than lots of other countries. Um, so who who has a stake in this? When, when thinking through these, I think it's really useful to think about who do, who is affected by this and who are kind of the stakeholders. Well, this is it's such a multifaceted issue with far-reaching effects as we've been talking. Um, but I think a lot of times the easier question is who is not a stakeholder and who is not affected. Um, and virtually the answer is no one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone is everyone is affected by this. Um, and something that you mentioned earlier, Dr. Bullock, that I thought was interesting is this idea that the issue is well known in academic circles and criminal justice circles, but is most likely not as well known to the general public. And so we've been encouraged to see books such as the new Jim Crow law, um, documentaries on Netflix such as the 13th, trying to raise awareness about this. Um, but I think it needs to be taken a step further and really explaining the societal impact of it, not simply acknowledging that there is a problem, but how it directly affects each individual. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of different ways to consider the different perspectives and the way the effects um, kind of ripple throughout um, our, our society as a nation. Um, in our report, the way we had framed it is we started with a 10,000 foot view, starting at the national level and mm -hmm. then worked our way to the ground level, mm -hmm. ending with the individuals, which is a very valid way to approach it. But I think in terms of this conversation, it might be more beneficial um, and effective to consider it as a ripple effect and start by focusing where the issues are most concentrated. So starting from the opposite, okay. looking at the individual inmates. So when we talk about stakeholders, um, Obviously, the, the individual in, um, inmates or the former uh, convicts or ex-offenders, however you'd like to refer them, um, there is a significant economic impact on these individuals. While they are in prison, many of them um, already come from low socioeconomic status. Uh, many of them have credit card debt or mortgages to pay. Um, all of these debts that are accruing interest while they're sitting in prison, unable to work. And then once they are released, they face um, these almost insurmountable barriers to finding employment. Even if they want to become a contributing member of the society, society essentially has set them up for failure. Um, almost every job application asks for um, 
a listing of any of the times you've been in prison, if you have a felony conviction, anything like that. A majority of employers, if they see that you have a felony conviction, are going to throw your resume out the window. Sure. Um, so that is obviously very concerning. And along with that, on the individual um, level, these individuals are facing re uh, relational issues, this sense of isolation because they can no longer provide for their families. A lot of them have a lack of solid support. And so individuals are being torn apart by, by this. Um, there's also growing research on um, the prevalence of non-diagnosed mental illness among inmates and how that affects them after they leave prison. Um, which we could do an entire segment just on that, but the idea that the individual inmates are being affected. And then as they return to society, their families are being affected. So again, it's this idea of the ripple, the effect that goes out as the individuals try to return to their family and face all of these barriers, the families themselves are being torn apart. Father figures or mother figures are being removed. Um, children who are children of inmates or ex-offenders are estimated to be upwards of 50% more likely to be incarcerated themselves later in life. So it's this horrible, vicious generational cycle um, that just is perpetuated. And again, on the ec economic level, majority of these inmates were the primary income earner for their families. So when you take them out of that circle, these families that were already poor are now destitute or borderline destitute. Um, and we know that society is a collection of smaller units. So as these families are being torn apart, um, as their poverty is growing, it's influencing their communities, their neighborhoods. So neighborhoods are affected by all of this. Um, you also talk about uh, increased poverty levels for each of the families, increased poverty levels for the communities, increased poverty levels for the nation. It just ripples on and on. Um, there's actually, there is a, a study being, that was conducted that talked about this economic issue on a national level and it talked about from the years 1980 to 2004 um, the gross domestic product of the entire united states increased um, by 2.9 percent each year um, but poverty continued to grow so even though the economy was growing poverty was also on the rise which is uh, there's this disconnect and the authors of this research put forth the hypothesis that the reason for this is because of mass incarceration, that these poorer communities are becoming even poorer, and that that gap between the poor and the rich is growing exponentially as well. So as we see, um, a lot of times we like to think that if I don't directly know anyone who's been incarcerated, this is this does not affect me. But if we're talking in terms of gross domestic product, obviously it's affecting the entire nation. Well, not even to mention the... I mean, so you, you mentioned a lot of societal costs and an implicit cost to society, both now and and future generations, because this becomes a kind of a cycle mm -hmm. um, in the way that poverty is. Um, and so, um, I think um, I, I think that sort of highlights just the implicit cost, but you also have explicit cost, right? So it's not cheap to keep people in prison, right? I mean, this isn't something, this has to be putting a strain on on uh, on state budgets in particular. Um, and so did you, um, did you see in your research anything about how expensive um, it is to just taxpayers for the resources to be going to holding so many inmates rather than other more productive uses of that money? 
specifically with the minor drug offenses, if you were to focus on, or minor nonviolent drug offenses, if you were to focus on rehabilitation instead of incarceration, it could save the United States $20 billion annually. So about large amounts of money, just on that one dimension. Just, just on this one dimension, $20 billion annually. And then uh, another figure that was given is that, and this is an estimate for 2013, but but most of these costs are very comparable. Um, it's estimated that it costs between 21 and $33,000 per inmate each year to keep them incarcerated. Um, so, and that's simply just keeping them in a prison. Imagine if we were to turn that around and use it in a more productive manner. Sure, yeah. Um, all right, so, um, grim picture you've painted um uh this evening so what can we do about this do we have <clears throat> choices yeah so uh one of the things that we could do is you know obviously drugs are a big problem and uh to give some more grim statistics uh drug offenses account for about 45 percent of the federal prison population uh, and one in five prisoners of all local, state, and federal prisons are in for drug crimes. So this is a huge amount of people that, you know, potentially uh, could not be in prison if policymakers were to implement certain things. Mm -hmm. So we didn't want to just talk about the theory. We wanted to put pen to paper and find some rough estimates of what different pieces of legislation could do uh, to the prison population mm -hmm. and under certain effects. So. Uh, one of the big things is overcrowding. And okay. so we found uh, data from the federal and state prison populations and found that uh, in those, there's about 1.34 million people in prison. Okay. In the U.S.? In the U.S. Okay. Uh, and that doesn't account for the local stuff. It's state Just, and federal. Okay. And, but the capacity of these prisons is only 1.2 million. So there's about a 10% overcrowding. Uh, in these state and federal prisons. And so if you were to decriminalize all drugs, all of them, and pardon all the people who are in prison already for these drugs, uh, you would eliminate overcrowding mm -hmm. just by doing that. Because more than 10%, right? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and you'd actually end up with a 200,000 uh, surplus of capacity for mm -hmm. these prisons. But decriminalizing every single drug isn't very uh, practical. Practical, yep, yeah. Yep, okay. So, if you were to just pardon people with possession charges okay, only, yeah. you would reduce overcrowding to seventy-two thousand, which is a thirty-nine percent reduction in overcrowding. Mm -hmm. And so, and these aren't very practical. But, and you could go further down to just marijuana, but you'd still see some re uh, reduction in overcrowding. Mm -hmm. But there's also the reason that uh, putting people in prison for drug charges may not be the best thing for both the person and for the system as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that's talked about when talking about prisoners is recidivism or mm -hmm. the likelihood that they will uh, recommit a crime. And uh, they have shown, so Time Magazine uh, worked with criminologists, lawyers, and statistical researchers to see how many of these people are actually a threat to society. And they found that 25% of the prison population, or uh, 364,000 people, would be better off receiving alternative care uh, than being sent to prison. And another 14%, which is 212,000, had already served enough time to be safely set free. 
And so, and there's other evidence that shows that uh, increasing the length of time in prison increases increases the recidivism of the low risk offenders. So, mm -hmm. by decriminalizing, and we're trying to focus mainly on marijuana, uh, it would help people to not commit more crimes because of just the effects of prison on the person. Uh, and then another thing, you know, if policymakers didn't want to decriminalize any drugs, one thing that they could do is just get rid of mandatory minimum minimum sentencing. So basically, how it is now, depending on the severity of the crime, uh, there's a minimum amount that of time that they can go to jail. And so that really makes it inflexible for judges who are like, okay, this guy really just needs help, doesn't need to go to prison, but he has to sentence them to prison. Uh, so by eliminating minimum sentencing, uh, we would make it more flexible for the judges to think about what actual actually is the best thing for these uh, offenders. The crime, yeah. And then uh, the last thing we looked at was uh, the public safety concerns. So as far as just arrests go, uh, in 2015, 643,000 people were arrested for a marijuana law violation, which were 43% of all drug arrests. And of these, uh, 574,000 were arrested for possession only. And between 2001 and 2010, there have been 8.2 million marijuana arrests. So if we were to decriminalize marijuana, this would free up all the resources of policemen, judges, lawyers, public defenders, all these people who are doing these, uh, basically it's like litigation between the judges and all the rest of the parties. Uh, and this would be potentially uh, beneficial to taxpayers as, you know, 8.2 million people is a lot of people and that's <laughs> sure. a lot of arrests. Yeah. And so that's time and money going into this that could be uh, freed up by just decriminalizing marijuana. Yeah, I, um, as any uh, as listeners of the podcast will know, the very first episode um, of the podcast was on the issue of medical cannabis, um, and uh, we cover the National Academy of Sciences report on on the use of cannabis for medical purposes, and. Um, my friend and colleague David Bradford has shown um, that if you that there are there are lots of benefits to this. One is decreasing opioid deaths, which is another kind of epidemic um, that we we won't have time to get into today. Um, but not also to mention the amount of money it saves um, just from uh, from legalizing cannabis and for medical purposes to Medicare and Medicaid. Um, there's the it doesn't it no longer scientifically meets the standard for Schedule One drugs. Um, we know that there are um, that are there are medicinal benefits, right? And so you don't um, you don't have to convince this host of your argument. And um, e even if even if that weren't true, I think you raise a good philosophical or ethical question that um, we don't have a lot of time to wrestle with. But is um, um, it's clear to me that uh, alcohol uh, and alcohol use does much more harm to others than cannabis use does. Uh, alcohol users are much more violent than the typical person and uh, cannabis users are not, right? And so it asks a real important question, I think, is what types of things should government be regulating and why? And so if it isn't dangerous to... 
uh, if cannabis use isn't uh, related with dangerous health outcomes or danger to um, others, the question is why is it being regulated in that way? Why should or should the government be regulating um, the use of drugs and people wanting to have altered conscious states? Um, and so, and particularly when it's not even consistently done, right? I mean, alcohol gives an altered conscious state, tobacco in some ways as well. And so the way in which we approach this is clearly very irrational in my opinion and very racially based and very based in whether special interests have been able to capture enough profit to get it legal. Um, and so I think this is a, a big piece of it um, um, and one that I'm convinced of um, and it's frustrating often to see how it's played out um, because there are a lot of people who would be productive members of society who are kept behind bars for something that is recreationally available in large swaths of the population in the U.S. and so legally. Um, so little plug there that we share on the ridiculousness of cannabis being a schedule one drug. So with that, there's at least, I know uh, a few more pieces of this that y'all covered. So let's hear a little bit about that. Well, our second potential solution for future would be rehabilitation. As we mentioned, over the past decades, the, po the population of prisoners in the U.S. has been largely increasing. Most people expect the imprisonment to have such purpose as punishment, uh, deterrence, and correction. But, I mean, data shows that um, about three quarters of the released prisoners would be arrested again within five years of their release. and. Well, about 6% of them would be reconvinted, reconvinted again, which is really a big number. Mm -hmm. And scholars have suggested that we rethink that what our criminal justice system is all about. Is it about punishment or rehabilitation? Well, researchers have had a number of evidence in nearly 30 years showing that with the appropriate environments, depth, and methods. Other measures, such as community counseling, could lead to the better outcome than imprisonment. Well, another evidence also indicates that structural or behavior interventions can help uh, to reduce prison population and help the government save more money. Yes, which is what you call it. <laughs> the most important thing is that just like Kenan mentioned, it is about public safety and can influence the society more and widely and deeper. Well, currently, the efforts to reduce the prison population have three broad directions. The first one is shifting criminals from prison by carrying out alternatives to incarceration. And the second one is reducing uh, recidivism so that we can reduce prison population. And the third one is uh, reassign and reinvesting criminal justice resources to treatment and prevention. And this is also the next part I'm going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, so now, I'm, now I want to talk about the justice, justice reinvestment. I mean, the purpose of the justice reinvestment are to uh, reduce the budget on incarceration and reinvest it in rehabilitation and prevent and prevention programs to reduce the crime and recidivism. And 
Well, here's one interesting case in Texas. In uh, 2007, Texas estimated it would need like extra 17,000 uh, prison beds by 2012, which could cost two billion dollars. But uh, uh, the legislators approved a two-year expenditure of uh, 241 million dollars in probation, parole, and reentry programs instead of providing the budget that they need to expand the prison. So the result were immediately. In the first two years, the, the policy decreased the prison population by 9,000 and, and set the government for uh, $443 million. So, and also, the recidivism rate fell 25% and the parole uh, revocation fell for 9%, which I know you don't like the numbers. But. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, but with this policy, Texas has closed three of its prisons, saving thousands of people, their family, and their neighborhood. Like as you talked about, it's a big deal for our society. After that, states like Georgia, Kentucky, and other started to follow with this program, taking the budget for prisoners' housing, drugs, alcohol abuse, counseling, mental health treatment, and something like education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so with resources put towards rehabilitation, it, in Texas we found that that was, that was useful, yeah. right? It helped save money and it helped lower the recidivism rate. Yes, and also, well, like my group mate mentioned one big portion of prison population is from parole violation. So the survey shows that the parole officers give higher priority to law enforcement function of parole instead of the function of rehabilitation. And at the same time, the budget on parole per capita has been reduced, which means the parole officers have heavier workload. With this reason, new, techlo new technology has been used on a police more and more, like electronic monitoring and drug testing, which is easier to, um, for the parole officers to monitor and monitor mm -hmm. parole violation. So the, pro the parole violators are the fastest growing portion among prison admission. The data shows that in 1985, 70% of the parolees were able to successfully complete their parole term, but by 1998, the number had dropped to 45%. There's one other example. That's, uh, Colorado also used the Justice Reinvestment Program to adjust the parole laws and system. Well, after adjusting the rule related to drug offense and the length of parole supervision for low and medium risk level offenders, this adjustment helped Colorado save $5.9 million on its budget within two years. And Colorado then reinvested the saving on training the parole officers, providing released prisoners with rehabilitative programs. So. I mean, the mass incarceration has lasted for nearly four decades, right? Mm -hmm. And it may take years to change the situation. 
But it's not just about human rights issue. It's also about practical idea to public safety and well-being for the whole society. So by reducing the prison population, it helps the individuals not just directly to the prisoners themselves, but also to their families and communities. So can also prove the racial equality like my groupmates mentioned. Yeah, it's, it's really good to know that there are at least some efforts going on at the state level to be a little bit more intelligent about this. Um, because at the low, particularly at the nonviolent level, it seems clear to me that we should be focusing on rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And if we can find ways to lower the recidivism rate as part of rehabilitation, not only is that good from just a human potential standpoint, not having to take away someone's ability to go have a full life and let them have a, some potential, but it also saves money, right? Meaning take that money and divert it somewhere else. If you just focus on the rehabilitation piece as part of this, not just the punishment piece, mm-hmm. which seems to be the piece that maybe the whole system has been missing. Yeah. And the <clears throat> bigger question that we would pose to your viewers, listeners, is that uh, what is the reason for prison? Is it just a place to hold people or is it to you know, make them to where when they come out, they're not going to commit more crimes. So that's really like the bigger issue here is like, what is the purpose of prison? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, um, I think it is a question that as a society, we've got to wrestle more with because the default, what we have now, the current structure doesn't feel good. When you, when you look at the numbers and the outcomes we have, there's something about this that when you compare it across other countries and then you notice the disparities across uh, not just race, but also like access to income and financial opportunities and how this kind of affects and infiltrates entire communities. Um, it, 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 um, it seems like there should be some ways to adjust the structure we have now um, to focus on rehabilitation because these, these aren't working, right? And it seems like it's mostly a function of an inability to get a coherent set of policies pushed forward again. And I wonder why that is, um, because some of the way in which this has been laid out, the research you capture here isn't new research. Um, some of it is, um, but a lot of it has been growing for a long time. And so I wonder um, why is it that we can't shift our focus from punishing people just for the sake of punishing them, instead trying to rehabilitate them to be members of society because it saves money and it increases human potential. Um, so I'm glad that you sort of ended here on highlighting some rehabilitation um, strategies. Is there anything anyone else would like to add before we wrap up? Yeah, um, so when we were doing this project, kind of in the initial inception of it is, we wanted to kind of think of something that was outside of the box. Um, a lot of research has been done about criminalization and rehabilitation. So we kind of wanted to look at, um, instead of focusing on how do we fix the crimes or how do we fix um, the rehabilitation system, we wanted to look at something that was more indirect in terms of why there might be this reason that mass incarceration exists. So through that, we kind of looked at the criminal justice system as a whole, and we found kind of a, a big backlog here with the public defender system. 
And we, we thought maybe that was kind of a key to where some of this problem would be. And we mentioned earlier about how there was a lot of overworked attorneys and a lot of people um, not getting the proper representation. So in our research, we found about in 1963 with Gideon versus Rainwright, that uh, Supreme Court case that allowed everybody to have um, an attorney, which you may know from the, the Miranda Wright statement mm -hmm. on, on TV. But uh, so back then, there was only about 150,000 defendants that were facing felony charges and needed representation. Um, since then, as you know from the uptick of um, the war on drugs and just how criminal rates have been increasing with um, incarceration, there's now 2.2 million people who are in prison, on probation, or on parole. Um, so that's a lot. That's a big number right there, and there's not enough attorneys and public defenders to handle all those cases. Mm -hmm. So um, another thing that we looked at with that, and we'll get into that later, is just how underfunded the uh, criminal defense um, division is. I mean, we found through the Policy Institute that police and other forms of uh, corrections, so like police forces, the correction systems themselves, are multi-billion dollar industries with funding. Um, the criminal defense system itself is just barely under a billion dollar industry. So there's a big discrepancy between where the funds are going in this and we think that's a huge problem with that because you'll have underfunded defense systems that don't have enough resources to hire private investigators or paralegals or any kind of administrative staff. Not only that, but not even have the ability to pay um, public defenders that may be good. They might just get in a lot of people that are fresh out of law school that haven't been through the system and don't know how to really properly try a case. And so some of these um, defenders are not even getting any proper representation. Um, there's not a lot of face time with their attorneys. So some of them are just taking plea deals because of that fact. Um, some other interesting facts with that we found was that um, on average, public defenders should only handle about 150 felonies or 400 misdemeanors or 200 juvenile cases, 200 mental health cases, or just 25 appeals each calendar year. But what we're seeing is that uh, public defenders are actually handling about 530 cases, um, which if, if they worked uh, even just a couple minutes every day would still not be able to fully represent their cases in a whole calendar year. So that's a just huge, um, big, big difference between that. So you can imagine there's a lot of hours put into working cases. Mm -hmm. um, so through that, the criminal justice system, public defenders now kind of have what is called triage, which is in the medical world, um, the more serious people in the ER, gunshot wounds, stuff like that, they get priority over your upset stomachs or whatever your recent anxieties over your health is. Um, those ones are more serious. So what happens with that is public defenders are taking high-level felony cases um, and taking those as more important than it is lower misdemeanors. And um, I have the statistic here. That's kind of a, even a bigger discrepancy because those low-level misdemeanor offenses um, actually make up most of the cases of people in prison. And so that has also the highest potential of punishments with some of these. So they're not getting the proper representation that they deserve with that front. Um, so what we made recommendations of for this is to first increase funding 
um, to the public defender system. Because right now, as I said earlier, there's a lot of funding going between police forces and correctional systems, um, which you can get in a whole idea of, of the militarization of police. But for this example, we'll talk about how there is just no parity between that. So criminal defense systems don't even have the opportunities to pay the attorneys to work. Um, so through that, we came up with kind of our own idea um, that we think may be somewhat innovative and hopefully may be able to kind of help the problem is that we wanted a kind of an attorney lottery system um, made up kind of like how um, jury duty works. And through that, we wanted to see if that would be if the American Bar Association would have kind of a requirement for any practicing attorneys to be, if you want to be admitted to the bar, you have to go through this kind of lottery system. So where your name is picked, you're kind of, it's your turn to take some of your time off, maybe a week, two weeks, um, to work these backlog cases in the criminal defense system and work in your counties and in your uh, cities and even in your states to take some of these cases on and help with some of this and give these people proper representation. Because as Gideon versus Rainwright said in the Sixth Amendment, you have the right to an attorney. And so we feel that everybody should have that right. And I think that would um, be able to kind of decrease some of these because you wouldn't have people just accepting plea deals or representing themselves in court cases. You'd actually have skilled attorneys taking the time, going through the evidence, um, and with the uptick in funding that we suggested, you'd actually have them to be able to have people um, investigate their cases, do research on their cases, give time to their cases where they were able to um, have that proper funding. Um, in addition to the lottery system, we know there'd be a lot of pushback with that because there just always is in this situation like this. So we kind of said that maybe there should be some uh, monetary incentive um, for the attorneys that do get selected to do this, whether that's a tax rebate or payment up front because everybody knows that your time is money so you be taking time off your own practice to do this but we find that's really important um, and finally with that we think that um, that in the lottery system people that are have these misdemeanor cases deserve more skilled attorneys people that have been through the system for a while so guys that have, you know, upper 20, 30 years of experience taking on some of these misdemeanor cases because, as we said earlier, a lot of the lower level cases are being taken by kids that are uh, fresh out of law school and may not have the same experience. And so we think to be having fair and equal treatment on these, some of these people that more experience and more knowledge and, and can pick up on patterns um, through cases to be able to help and assist with that. Well... My suggestion is that we take the savings from the rehabilitation projects and we use those to fund your lottery system to incentivize attorneys to participate. Absolutely. There we go. We solved it all today. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thank you. Um, we're getting kind of close to the hour mark, so let's go ahead and wrap up there in respect of everyone's time. Um, but I really appreciate you. Uh, I really enjoyed your report um, I really appreciate you bringing another voice and some views to this issue um, because it is one of uh, kind of our pressing challenges as society, uh, and in my opinion, on a human rights front right now. I mean, it's it's crazy to me to think that the place that you think of, or at least that I have thought of as the land of the free, is also the land that puts the most people behind bars, right? Something about that feels un-American in the way that I think of America. And so hopefully 
um, at a, this, uh, this episode can help raise some awareness of some of the issues and some uh, clever solutions that you've pointed out this evening. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Season 2 of the Public Problems Podcast. If you would like to help support this podcast, you can do so by sharing the episodes with your friends, family, students, and liking our page and following along as we do live events. You can also support the Public Problems Podcast financially by subscribing to the podcast at justinbullock.org slash subscribe or by clicking the Shop Now button on our Facebook page. Here you can pick any monthly subscription or single donation amount that you'd like to contribute. Any support is greatly appreciated. I very much believe in this podcast and its content and hope to make it more visible and have more time to spend on it in the future. Thank you very much.